So I went to this conference. This is about 20 years ago. I was at uh, St. Anthony's High School. I was chaplain at the time. And uh, I went to the conference because of the topic. It was, uh, had to do with mental health and kids, teenagers in particular. We had just had uh, the previous year two kids in my school at St. Anthony's commit suicide. So it was very much on our mind. And uh, just in the news, we were hearing more and more about suicide being on the rise. Um, everybody was alarmed. Everybody was wondering, like, what the heck, what is going on? What could be leading kids to get to this point of such despair and hopelessness? So myself and a couple of the uh, guidance counselors in the school, we went to it. And it was really good, some really great speakers, a couple of which I, I still very much remember. There was this one guy, he gave a very powerful, but you know, very sad talk. This guy was uh, in his 50s, maybe his mid-50s. And he, was, uh, he told us a little bit about himself first. He, uh, he was a great athlete. He played uh, high school and football, college. Um, uh, high, sorry, high school and college football. And uh, was real good, yeah, really good. And himself was now a, a high school coach and really successful. Um, I think he was from Texas or somewhere in the South. I remember, first of all, the way he spoke, but also uh, his description of sort of like what football is like in the South and in the Midwest. Like it's, it's big here, it's like kind of enormous there. So he's been coaching for a bunch of years. He had kids of his own, he had a couple of boys and a couple of girls. I remember he had three boys, all of whom played football under him. He coached them in high school. Then he told us about the third son. I think his name was Travis. It was Travis or Tyler, I forget. We'll, we'll say it was Travis. He said, uh, Travis wasn't as good as the first two. He was good, like, and, he, and he wanted us to know that. It wasn't like, you know, he, was, he was actually very good, but I guess the older two were really amazing. And he said, uh, out of the blue, seemingly out of the blue, Travis told his parents at the beginning of his junior year, he didn't want to play football anymore. He just didn't want to play. He said he had other interests and football was kind of swallowing everything else up. It was so time consuming, he just kind of didn't have time for other things that he wanted to do. So the father was crushed, shocked, crushed, at first kind of angry, and then just very disappointed. He could not really understand or accept the fact that his son was walking away from football. And as a result of that, he said, this is the father talking. He said he, uh, he just kind of distanced himself from Travis, from the kid. It was subtle, but real, and everybody saw it. Certainly Travis did. His wife did, the other sibling. People knew it. Travis was a, a musician. He uh, like a natural. 
He played a bunch of instruments, one of these kids who could kind of pick it up and almost was playing it, whatever the instrument, almost immediately. And he wanted to focus more on that. They were really the other interests that the father referenced. So he got into a band and he started playing and it was doing well. And uh, the father just kind of ignored it. Mom and the siblings, other people were supporting it. They'd go to some of his performances. And dad always had an excuse just kind of couldn't make it for whatever reason. He just kind of ignored his son and what his son was doing. And it just got worse with time. This kid kept looking for his father's approval and interest and acceptance, and he was getting none of it. He was getting the opposite. He just kind of slammed the door on his son. So at a certain point, Travis began to resent it. His father's response, he kind of went from being hurt to now being kind of angry. And he didn't handle it well. He started thinking, all right, how can I embarrass my father? And he knew the things that would embarrass him. He was now in this band, and they were like kind of a pretty intense rock and roll band, and he kind of took on that persona crazy hair and, you know, dressing different. He was in a couple of bands. I think the second or third one, they were not good, their influence. A lot of partying, a lot of drug use. But he kind of didn't care. He went away to, uh, he didn't go away to school, but he went, to, he went locally his freshman year in college and he failed out horribly the first semester. So it was getting worse. The following summer he died, this kid. He overdosed and they never really knew if it was intentional or a mistake. Some said one, others said the other but he was dead. We were kind of stunned when he told us when he got to that point, like which is not what any of us were expecting. And then he said, uh, for the longest time, this is the father, said, for the longest time I thought quitting football was when everything went bad, when everything went south with Travis when he quit football. And then he said, you know what, I realized years later, or a number of years later, that it didn't start with his quitting football. It started when I began making Travis invisible. When I stopped acknowledging what he was doing, the good stuff before he started making stupid mistakes. He was seriously committed to the music and the band. And I just pretended like it wasn't happening. Like I just made him invisible. You can't make people invisible. It's this parable tonight. It's exactly what happens to 
Lazarus. He's the, the homeless guy sitting on the front stoop of this rich guy. And it's how the rich guy treats the poor guy. He just makes him invisible. And it didn't end well. It didn't end well for the rich guy. When we make people invisible, it never ends well. And this poor father was standing up in front of 500 people telling us his story. And it was really like a tale of warning to parents, really. Don't ever make your kid invisible. It's interesting, this parable. It's all about the end of the parable, really. A lot of times people hear it. It's like this rich guy, poor guy. And everybody thinks, yeah, that's what it's about. It's about, be, you know, being rich is bad and being poor is it's not good, but eventually, you know, it'll go, it'll end up well for you. And it's like, mm, I don't think it's so much about that. Yeah, I mean, people who are rich and who are gross with being rich and get totally absorbed in themselves, of course that's not good. But I don't think it's an anti-rich guy parable. And he also talks about heaven and hell. The rich guy went to uh, hell and the poor guy went to heaven. Well, that's true too, heaven and hell. But I don't think it's so much a story about that. It's really about what happens at the end of it. The rich guy has died. He's in hell. He sees Abraham and Lazarus in heaven. And he says, listen, I got five brothers and they're still alive. Could you go and, and wake them up? Because they're fat, gross, rich pigs like me. They're living just the way I am. And man, I don't want, that, I don't want it to end up like this for them. So go send, sound an alarm. Light them up and tell them to wake up. And Abraham's like, no, I'm not going to do that. They're not going to listen, says Abraham. And he goes, listen, they will listen. If you send Lazarus back, this guy who was dead, and who, who comes back from the dead, and you send him, you bet they'll listen. And he goes, no, they won't. They didn't listen to me, Abraham. They didn't listen to the prophets. They're not going to listen to some guy who came back from the dead. It's totally Jesus referring to himself. He's like, they're not going to listen to me. People who had proof that he had risen from the dead. Some followed, but a lot didn't. He's like, they're not, they're not going to listen. Because they're not going to want to change their lives. They like being rich. They like being the center of the universe. They like the spotlight only on them, the way the rich guy liked it. These brothers were all the same. So there's no way they're going to listen because they just don't want to change. Hey, that's what, that's really what the rich guy's sin was. It wasn't like he, he mistreated it in, a, in, like in an obvious, in-your-face way, the poor guy. He didn't call the cops and say, get this slob off my porch. He didn't look at him and just sort of be like, roll his eyes. All he did was ignore him. And that was enough to get him to hell. <laughs> you can't make people invisible. And the reason he did, 
The rich guy was real simple. He was like, if I look at this poor guy sitting on my stoop, looking terrible, I'm going to have to do something. I can't look at him and just walk into my house and pig out the way I do every day and night. When this guy's starving, I will have to wait. I'll have to put my life on hold a little bit to reach out to this guy. I'll have to change. And he didn't want that. So the best way to make sure that doesn't happen, don't look at the guy. If you don't see him, he's not going to make you uncomfortable. He's not going to give you the guilts. So make him invisible. It doesn't end well when we make people invisible. Think about the father. Think about the coach. You know, I was, I was having dinner uh, a couple of weeks ago with a couple of people from the parish. Uh, a couple of couples, married couples. They all had kids, young kids, grade school. Churchgoers, very much churchgoers. And they were talking about, um, I think it was the last beach mass in August. And all of July and all of August, we had no rainouts. We had incredible weather. And they were talking about how great the beach mass was this summer. It was just kind of between the weather and the crowds, just so beautiful and prayerful and powerful. Hundreds, 800, 900 people. Last year, that was kind of down. I don't know if it was COVID or whatever it was, but the numbers weren't great. So we, we kind of came roaring back this summer. We were all psyched. And they were just kind of raving about it. And then I kind of went on a rant with these couples. I was like, you know what? First of all, I agree with you. It was awesome. But I was like, as many people as there were there, there was like so many that aren't. So many families, so many kids who just, just don't, they don't go to church. And I'm not saying everybody's got to go to the beach mass. Some people don't like the beach mass. That's fine. But they're going to other masses. But there's a ton of people, like a majority, who just don't go to any mass. And I was like, I mean, like, what? The music is amazing. The location's incredible. The weather. It's like it's totally family-friendly mass. You're looking around, you're seeing your neighbors and people you go to school with. Like, it's just so great. And I'm like, what else, we do? What else can we do to get people to come to church? I was like, what are we going to do? Like, hand people 20s as they come in? You know, we'll pay you to go to church? Like, what else can we do? And then one of these women kind of cut me off. And she goes, Father Brian, they're not going to come. Like, no matter what you do, no matter what you offer, they're not going to come. And I was like, what? Like, why? And she was like, they know it's beautiful. They love the beach. They live in Long Beach. Half of them are on the beach an hour before. They know the music is amazing. They know it's kid-friendly. And I'm like, well, then why don't they go? And she's like, because they don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be challenged. Like, the gospel is challenging. Like, if we really listen to it 
and if it's explained effectively, hey, how do you not come to church sometimes and like squirm a little bit? Because it's like, oh my God, like what he's saying in this gospel is exactly, he's describing me. Like I, I need to get it together. I need to be better in this way or that way. And sometimes it just makes us uncomfortable and that's a good thing. That's why they don't go to church. I was thinking, that's the reason I would go to church. Because I know I am far from perfect. And I need to be reminded where I'm screwing things up. I'm not saying we go to church to get whacked over the head every week and to feel terrible about who we are. Not even remotely that. But when appropriate to be like, hey, I'm so, much, I'm, I'm so capable of more than I'm doing right now. This woman was like, yeah, like they're... It's like moms and dads who aren't doing a great job at that, and they know they're not because they're distracted or they're impatient. And somehow, something Jesus says in the gospel is going to remind them of that. Or they've got aging parents themselves, and they realize I need to be more present to them, and something that's said reminds me of that. It's like, ah, that kind of hurts. Yeah, but that's good hurt. That's like, yeah, I need to get it together. And she's like, yeah, but they just, they got some hurt, some wound within them that they're not just really looking at. And somehow when they come here, they're afraid it's going to be like, somebody's going to touch the wound. No, somebody's going to heal the wound. So you know what they do? They just make the church invisible. The church becomes their Lazarus. If I don't, if I don't see it, if I don't see it sitting on the stoop, I won't think about it. This woman, her name was Emma. She was at JFK, she was at the airport. She'd just gone through security and JFK was a madhouse. The weather was terrible, so everything was being delayed and rerouted. Security was like a horror show. She was exhausted. She travels a lot. She's got a great job, like seriously important job. And she's kind of shot. She just was exhausted. She had a couple of very, very busy, stressful days with work. She was heading back to Chicago, which was home. She gets through security at JFK, and she's saying to herself, please let there not be a crazy crowd at the gate before I get on the plane. Because all she wanted to do was get a cup of coffee, go off in the corner away from everybody, and read a book. That's all she was, was hoping for. She shows up, and there's not many people there. She's psyched. She's like, oh, yes. So she plants herself in the corner, opens the, gets the coffee, opens the book, and she's just like catching her breath. Like five minutes later, this elderly woman comes walking down right up to her and sits right opposite her, like... Like their knees were almost touching. It was, you couldn't get closer other than maybe to sit next to her. She couldn't believe it. She looks up and see, she's like thinking to herself, 
There's 25 empty seats. What are you sitting on top of me for? Thinking this. So she goes back to reading the book. And the woman starts to ask her harmless questions. The first thing she says is, uh, do you think it's... Do you think it's going to be cold in Chicago? <laughs> and she goes like, yeah, I don't know. And goes back to the book. And there's like three, four, five more of these questions. And she's just giving her yes, no answers. Like rude. But the poor old lady's not getting, this, getting the message. And then the old lady says this. I'm going to Chicago to bring my husband back. We were married 53 years, and he died suddenly. I'm bringing his body back to Chicago. That's where we're from, and that's where we'll be buried. And the woman looks up, closes her book, gets up, walks over to where this old lady was sitting and sits down right next to her and grabs her hand. She says, uh, tell me about your husband. And she just opened up, talked about their life together. They never had kids, but they had this great life, this great marriage. And she said she never let go of her hand. And then they got called onto the the plane, they were both going to Chicago. You know, Lazarus isn't just a homeless beggar. Certainly can be that, certainly is that. Man, but Lazarus shows up in a thousand ways. Lazarus is just the one that we make invisible. And once in a while, we get caught, and we're grateful, probably a little guilty, but then we realize, what was I doing? How could I have made her so invisible? And she fixed it, and she repaired it. You know, I had two funerals this week, one Thursday, one Friday. One was for a retired fireman, 9-11 related cancer. He was down there for weeks. And they think the cancer that killed him came from there. Huge crowd, amazing guy. I knew him a little bit. Not, not well, but I knew him. Four kids, teenagers, and a little bit older. And they just loved him. His whole life was his kids and his wife. Total faith guy, church guy. The next day, I had a funeral at St. Mary's for an 85-year-old woman. I met her four adult kids and her 11 or 12 grandkids. And they loved her because of the way she lived her life. It was like a clinic. These two days, it was like a clinic on how to live your life what you need to commit yourself to, of all the stuff that we 
we commit to, like these were the, these are the things that matter most. And it was like family and faith, faith and family, friends. Like that's kind of it. And this 60-year-old fireman and this 85-year-old grandmother did it. You know what they never did, I suspect? They never made people invisible. Probably people that they wanted to make invisible. We all experienced that, but I bet they never did. So what's your Lazarus? Who's your Lazarus?